this, this is, I'm going to put it this way, guys. This is their last Sunday here for a while. You like that? I don't think they're gone forever, but they're going to take a hiatus. And I want to just uh, ask them a few questions and I'm going to give the mic to Travis. And uh, there you go. So this is Travis and Liz. I think you all know them. Um, my wife and I love them. I know you love them as well. And uh, this is hard for them. You okay, Liz? But this is hard for me too. <laughs> it's, it's not fun. But we, we are so excited for you guys. We're, we're so sad to see you go. But we are proud of both of you. Um, as your pastor, I am personally proud of you both. You, you have grown so much over the last several months over the last several years and god is doing a good work of grace in your life and before i um go any further i want to read a section of scripture because paul the apostle he understood what it's like to be in partnership with people and here's what he wrote to the church of philippi and this is my prayer for you as well i thank my god and all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. And so God is just beginning this good work of grace in in both of you. And I know he's going to do great things in the days ahead. Travis, uh, tell tell the congregation um, why you're leaving and who you're going to work for and where you're going. Yeah, so we're leaving down to McAllen, um, McAllen, Texas. I joined the Border Patrol about five months ago and just got done with the academy. Um, Yeah, I was down in New Mexico for the last five months or so, and yeah, that's pretty much (laughs) why we're going down to McAllen, Texas. So it'll be a big change, and it should be a fun journey for us. Good deal. Can can you think of anything off the top of your head, ways that the church family can be praying for you as you make your transition? I just pray to find a good church and meet new friends and just be welcome down there. Obviously, it's a new state, and we've never been down there and have no family. So just pray for safe travels down there and get involved in a good church. Right. Yeah, Texas is one of my favorite countries, actually. I don't know if I ever told you that. <laughs> good deal. I want to invite a few of you to come on up or several of you to come up. And we just want to commit this dear couple to the Lord um, on this Sunday. Let's let's pray together. Thanks. Let's pray. Father, this is a couple that we uh, love dearly. We thank you for uh, the work of grace that you you began uh, so long ago in their hearts, and you continue uh, to this day and on into the future. And while we will miss them, we are excited for them uh, as they begin this new adventure, this new journey that you have um, uh, been with them every step of the way. You are sovereign over every detail that has come into their lives, and we know that you care for them so much. And now as they make their way to Texas, we ask that you would keep them safe. As Travis asked earlier, we ask that you would provide a a church uh, family, a church that's committed to expository preaching, a church that loves the Word of God, a a church who is committed to the gospel and is uh, ready and willing to be hands and feet to the community that you have placed them. And I pray that Travis and Liz would be numbered among those hands and feet, people who would go into the community proclaiming the Word of God, proclaiming the gospel. I pray, God, that you would grant them your strength and your peace as they leave this place. And really, I pray almost selfishly, God, that you would, you would bring them back in the scope of your providence in some time, someday in the future, and that you would reunite us uh, once again to continue to serve together, uh, all for the great namesake of Jesus Christ. So would you send our friends with uh, the richest blessing from their friends at Christ Fellowship, all for your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. We love you guys. You bet. My pleasure. Thanks, Liz. We're going to, uh, for the guys upstairs, we're going to dispense with the video. And we might show that sometime down the road. But I would rather preach this morning than show a video. How about that?
This morning, we begin, if we can make a kind of a rough transition, we begin a a new study together. This is a series that we have entitled, Always Reforming the Marks of a Faithful Church. And in this study, we will, as a church family, familiarize ourselves with the key elements of the Protestant Reformation. Many of you know that Uh, Coming up very shortly on October 31st, just several weeks away, we will be moving, we will actually be coming to the point of celebrating the 500th year anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. And so for me, I must tell you as your pastor, this is a series that I've been planning long before we were called to Christ Fellowship. I remember it was at least 15 years ago, I began to, to... mull over in my mind what a a preaching series would look like wherever we happen to be that would help a church family greater understand the importance of the Protestant Reformation. In the study, we will learn what the Reformers were willing to die for, and more importantly, the Savior that the Reformers lived for. And once again, our study will take us to the end of October where we will celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. In the scope of God's providence, when we're done with this series, we will move very quickly into an expository study on the book of Ephesians, which I am very, very excited to embark on. Well, Martin Luther, born in 1483, died in 1546, becomes a somewhat of a lightning rod. He is the key figure In the days of the Protestant Reformation, at the age of 21, Luther had already, if you can believe this, attained his master's degree in law. Six months after graduating, Luther, as some of you know, was caught in a thunderstorm, a storm that he assumed to be the almighty judgment of God. Bear in mind that at this point in Luther's life, he is unconverted. He is unregenerate. He is a child of wrath. He is not reconciled to God. He believes he is, but he is still an unconverted man. And as he is faced with the the dread of this thunderstorm, almost at the brink of despair, Martin Luther cried out, St. Anne, help me. Now, St. Anne was one of the patron saints of the day of the Roman Catholic Church. And so he cried out, St. Anne, help me. I will become a monk. Have you ever prayed a prayer like that? A lot of you have. And you know what's funny about that? A lot of you didn't, didn't follow through on your commitment. Lord, if you do this, I will do that. And God gets you out of the predicament. And what do you do? Yeah, you go on your merry way, right? Luther, Luther, when he cried out, St. Anne, save me. I will become a monk. He decided to keep his word and entered a strict Augustinian monastery and began his life as a monk in 1505. This is an amazing story. A man who had a zeal for God, but he didn't know God. A man who had a passion to to serve God and worship God, but he was utterly unconverted. One biographer says this about Luther's days as a monk. He says, quote, his days as a novice were occupied with those religious exercises designed to flood the soul with peace. Prayers came seven times a day. After eight hours of sleep, the monks were awakened between one and two in the morning by the ringing of the cloister bell. I want to ask the high school students, how many of you guys would like to be awakened at two o'clock in the morning by the sound of the cloister bell? No dice, right? That was what it was like for Luther in this monastery. And even though these religious activities were designed to, quote-unquote, bring peace to the soul, the young, budding monk only embraced more and more despair. Now, there was a second thunderstorm that came into the life of Luther. And this thunderstorm was, was far more radical than the first This is the thunderstorm that took place when he oversaw his first mass as a junior monk. The date was May the 2nd, 1507. Luther, as he presided over the elements, raised his arms and said, We offer unto thee the living, the true, the eternal God. And he froze. 
he froze. Now, the background of the story is this, is that his father, a hardworking man, had paid for Luther to attend the university to become a lawyer. And after Luther's thunderstorm experience, when he decided on the really at the drop of a hat to move from law to become a priest, you can imagine his father was not a proud father. He was an angry father. But his father, to show support for Luther, decided almost begrudgingly to go to this first mass that Luther was presiding over. And so imagine being the dad and watching your son freeze as he stood over the elements. And this is what Luther said later. He said, at these words, I was utterly stupefied and terror stricken. I thought to myself, with what tongue shall I address such majesty, seeing that all men ought to tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince? Who am I that I should lift up mine eyes or raise my hands to divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this or I ask for that? Luther continues, for I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to the living, eternal and true God. Now, having faced the second thunderstorm, Luther now vowed before almighty God, I will earn your favor. Now, by the way, if you're thinking like a good biblically minded protestant you should see through the unbiblical logic of luther at this point i will earn god's favor and so what does he do he would fast for days on end would you raise your hand if you've ever fasted i know it's a private thing but your pastor's asking have you fasted and some of you and we're not going to go from hours to days but some of you have fasted for hours some of you have fasted for half a day some of the brave ones of you other have, have fasted for a day. Some of you have fasted for several days. And it's a very interesting thing that when you enter the season of fasting, it, it's, it's quite an activity. It, you learn an awful lot. Well, Luther, Luther, Luther fasted for days on end. In order to receive favor from Almighty God, he slept in the snow without a blanket and without a coat. In fact, some days he would, see, he would be so proud of his personal holiness, he would say this, quote, I have done nothing wrong today, unquote. Do you hear the works-based righteousness in this young monk? Is, I am holy, I am good, I am pleasing God. And then he began to question his efforts. Had he fasted long enough? Is three days enough? Is four days enough? Is seven days enough? Had he prayed long enough? Had he prayed hard enough? Had he worked hard enough to earn favor in the sight of a holy God? He uttered these words. I was a good monk and I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say if ever a monk got to heaven by his sheer monkery, surely it was I. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other work. Close quote. Now we will look later in our study at the details of Luther's conversion. But for now, what is important for you to understand is for you to see the contrast between Luther's life as a, a Roman Catholic priest a Roman Catholic monk in an unconverted state. This is a man who was trying with all his heart to please a holy God. Now, the heart of what Luther rediscovered in the days of the Reformation can be summarized in what we refer to today as the solas of the Reformation. Namely, that sinners are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, on the word alone, all to the glory of God alone. 
These concise statements, these solas of the Reformation, form the unbreakable doctrinal chain on which the Reformation was built, and catch this, and on which this church, Christ Fellowship, stands. This morning, I want to briefly overview these statements, and I want to draw a line, if I could, from the days of the 16th century to the present day, 2017, almost 500 years later, and to show the relationship between what happened during the 16th century and what we now believe as a church family. This is a message that could cause some of you to become frustrated, not in a bad sense, but because what I'm going to do today is I'm going to look at each of the solas and the reformation. So if you could mark this in your mind, we're going to go out to the lake together as a church family, and I'm going to take five rocks and I'm going to skip the rock on the surface of the lake. And we're not going to go any deeper than that. Next week, we'll begin a slow process where we walk through and look at a sola each week. And so today, we're just going to skip the rock. Here's the strategy. I will begin by announcing the specific sola. And so we begin with grace alone in just a moment. And then I will read, to move to 2017, I will read the doctrinal affirmation that we affirm as a church family that shows how it's linked to the specific sola. Then we will read a scripture together to show that the sola is rooted in the word of God. And then we will take just a few minutes to examine some of the high points of the specific sola. And so let's begin with the first sola of the Reformation. And I want to give you the Latin word and then translate it as well, because I think it's important that we know these words in their historical context. And so we begin by looking at sola gratia. Sola gratia, that is grace alone. Grace alone. This is the statement that we have, adapt, we have adopted as members of Christ fellowship. You can read it together with me. It simply says this. We believe that sinners are saved by God's grace alone. Because apart from his grace, we do not have the ability nor the desire to please him or earn his favor. I've given you the rough historical sketch of Martin Luther's struggle. And if you read this statement, you see very clearly that this is diametrically opposed to what Luther embraced and experienced before he came, became a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. That we believe sinners are saved by God's grace alone. Because apart from his grace, we do not have the ability nor the desire to please him or earn his favor. Would you open your Bibles with me and turn to the book of Ephesians? And as I promised a moment ago, we want to examine together how each sola finds biblical support. And we do that by turning to Ephesians chapter 2 and looking at verses 1 to 5. While you're turning there, I should also indicate and, and highlight this morning that this will be less of an expository sermon and more of a, of a teaching sermon. And this is something that I feel is necessary in order to lay the biblical groundwork as we move forward as a church family. Look with me at Ephesians 2 verse 1. Paul the Apostle, writing to the church in Ephesus, says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God... But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. 
Now, let me highlight a few of the important details of sola gratia, grace alone. First, I want you to notice our previous condition. And to bring this in the historical context, you can say, say it like this. Remember Martin Luther's previous condition. Our previous condition begins in verse 1, that we were dead in trespasses and sins. And I won't do this with all of these, but you can in your own mind, is we, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ today, you are no longer dead in your trespasses and sins. This is your former condition. This is your previous condition. Verse 2 says also that we formerly walked according to the world. Continuing in verse 2, Paul says that we formerly followed the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In shorthand, we followed the devil. Verse 3, we formerly lived according to the passions of our flesh, and we carried out the desires of the body and mind. And then finally, we see in verse 3, and other scriptures verify this, is that we were formerly children of wrath. Once again, if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you are, are trusting the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation this morning, not because of anything you have said or anything that you could do or have done, but if you are trusting in Jesus and his substitutionary work on the cross for your sins, none of these things apply to you anymore. These are your previous condition. Now, if you were here and you were not a follower of Christ, all of these things currently apply to you. That is to say, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. That is to say, you are following the devil. You are living according to the flesh. You are a child of wrath. Notice, however, the current condition of every regenerate person. This morning, if you're a Christian, the Bible says in emphatic terms, beginning in verse 4, that we are now recipients of God's mercy. This is the kind of, I'm, I'm hoping to really engage with you in this series. When I say you are recipients of God's mercy, this is what I'm hoping to see. Gigantic smiles on your faces. Think about this. You are formerly a child of wrath. Under the wrath of God. But now God's word tells you this. You are a recipient of the mercy of God. Verse 4 goes on. You are also a recipient of God's love. Verse 5 says that we have now been made alive together with Christ. You are no longer dead in your trespasses and sins. Rather, you are alive in Christ. And then in verse 5 as well, we have been saved by grace alone. Amen? You see, the central issue that we will see throughout this study is the sovereignty of God's grace. It may surprise you if I were to tell you this morning that to speak in terms of sovereign grace has become highly controversial in the church of Jesus Christ. And it's something that has perplexed me for years because if God is not sovereign in his dispensing of grace, I don't know where we would turn. I don't know where we would go. We need to remember today that God dispenses his grace on his terms. He is sovereign in grace. That's the first sola, sola gratia. Next week, we will take the whole time together to examine that amazing reality of sola gratia. Move with me to sola fide. Sola fide, or faith alone. Faith alone. Here is the statement that we embrace as a church family. We believe that we are saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Apart from any human merit, works, or ritual, that genuine faith produces Christ-glorifying fruit in the people of God for the glory of God. Now continue to read with me in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And Paul says it like this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
That is the statement that we affirm as, as members of Christ's fellowship. But let me unpack sola fide for a moment by having you look at two main headings. First, in your notes, you'll see the critical principles. The critical principles. And I almost hesitate to overview sola fide in such a quick way. But my only hope is that two weeks from today, Lord willing, we will come back and explore this in greater detail. Here are the critical principles. And we begin by saying that justification is by grace alone through faith alone. Justification is by grace alone through faith alone. That we see in Ephesians 2 that faith is the gift of God. That justification is never a result of works. We will see this as we move forward, as we examine some of the the theology in Romans chapter 4. Justification is never a result of works. That is, I don't do things to stand holy in the sight of God. Rather, it's the opposite. Is God makes me holy. He proclaims me. He pronounces me as one who is holy in his sight. Ephesians continues that boasting is excluded, therefore. Why? Because faith comes from God. And then I want to make this statement that is very clearly taught, not only in the book of Ephesians, but also in the book of James. And that is that faith works. Faith works. And it's a bit of play on words, if you see what I'm trying to indicate, is works don't bring us to the point where we're justified. But when we have been justified, as we'll see later, that the justified person produces good works to the glory of God. Of God, We are saved by grace alone through faith alone, but faith is never alone. Let me say that one more time. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone, but faith is never alone. There is a heresy, an ancient church heresy that has surfaced in church history that continues to plague the church today. The heresy is called antinomianism. An antinomian is one who is against the law. Literally against the law. And here's what it looks like in daily living. If I'm an antinomian, I say something like this. I have been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I hope we would all say that is correct. That is what the Bible teaches. But then I would proceed further to say that under no circumstance should you say that good works should flow forth from my life. Therefore, I can do whatever I please. That is the heart of an antinomian. That is the heart of a person who simply does not understand the gospel. Because you see, so many of you have experienced this. When God justifies you, you realize that justifying grace works. That you have a passion for holiness. That you have a a passion for bearing fruit to the glory of God. That means that, that you don't have to be coerced to do ministry. You do ministry because you love God. And good works are, are the overflow of your heart that has been justified by God. I want to move forward and have you also see the second main heading that we have entitled the logic of the reformers. The logic of the reformers. By the way, logic, logic is a gift from God. Do you believe that? There, there is a strand, and I don't know where it began in the church, but there's a strand where logic is looked at with suspicion. But logic is something that God invented. Logic is something that God treasures and loves and therefore we should embrace it as well here's the logic of the protestant reformers it goes like this that justification by faith alone is absolutely essential to the gospel let me give you the logic and you'll see how it flows justification by faith alone is absolutely essential to the gospel second the gospel is essential to christianity And to salvation. Third, the gospel is essential to a church's being a true church. That is to say, if you reject the core reality of the gospel, you fail as a church. Finally, and most significantly, to reject justification by faith alone is to reject the gospel and to fall and to fail as a church. Luther said it like this, as a converted man. 
He said, justification by faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. Justification is the article upon which the church stands or falls. Thirdly, move with me to sola Christus, Christ alone. Christ alone. The doctrinal affirmation that we embrace as a church family is as follows. We believe that we are saved by Christ alone, who is fully God and fully man. Christ was our substitute who died for our sins on the cross and was raised from the dead on the third day. Now, do you know that there was a time in local churches when a a pastor such as myself could read this statement and let's say 50 years ago, give or take a few years. And as the church family, you would hear that statement and you would think that that is one of the most basic and orthodox things I've ever heard. Look at that. We believe we are saved by Christ alone, who is and who was fully God and fully man. But what I want to highlight here is the next statement, the one that has become controversial and needlessly so, that Christ was our substitute who died for our sins on the cross and was raised from the dead on the third day. I mentioned earlier that I really as a a personal ministry and even somewhat of a hobby and a passion of mine, I love to read books and review books. Well, I heard that a book was coming onto the market a few weeks ago that was entitled Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. And if you're thinking carefully, you can you can quickly determine what the author is trying to confront, because the most famous sermon on American soil was preached in 1741 by Jonathan Edwards. And the name of the sermon was Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And so what this author, this longtime pastor is trying to do is to to show that God is no longer a God of wrath. He's not a God of wrath. In other words, Jonathan Edwards was wrong, argues this author. More significant than that, this author repudiates this statement. You say, how could anyone repudiate that statement? This author, what he's doing is he's standing with a host of other authors and pastors who reject the doctrine of penal substitution. The doctrine that says that Jesus paid the penalty that was owing to me for my sin, that he bore the wrath of God on Calvary's cross and he stood in as my substitute. What these authors are saying is that penal substitutionary atonement, which, by the way, is not only the historic teaching of the church, it is also the explicit teaching of the Bible. These authors say this, that's nothing more than divine child abuse. And I have to tell you, every time I read those words, it it causes a, a shockwave to go through my body. Because it is an attack on the fabric of the gospel. And so while this statement seems like a basic statement, and in many respects it is, realize that this statement in our time, in our days, in these postmodern days, is under attack not only by the world, but also by some in the church. 1 Corinthians 15 says it like this, For I delivered to you, as a first importance that I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Two very brief observations without any passing comment. And we'll come back three weeks from today. Number one, Christ who was fully man and God, not only is, but was, Christ, who is fully man and God, is the only one who can bear the weight of sinners on the cross. He's the only one. Second, Christ's substitutionary death on the cross secured salvation for the elect of God, all for the glory of God. Number four, we're getting close to the home stretch. Sola Scriptura. Or scripture alone. Our statement here at Christ Fellowship reads as follows. We believe the Bible is God's absolute truth for all people for all times. It is our final authority for discerning truth. And you don't need to turn there this morning. You're very familiar with it. But Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 that all scripture 
All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. I want to make two very simple observations and then come back to these observations later in our study. The first is this, is that while the Roman Catholic Church held in the 16th century and continues to embrace two sources of infallible revelation. I want you to, in your mind's eye, ask, what are the two sources of infallible revelation in the Roman Catholic Church? Some of you have experience in the Roman Catholic Church, and you automatically came up with the answer. Others, this will be new for you. Here are the two sources. Number one is Scripture. The, the word of God is a source of infallible revelation, but there's also a second source of infallible revelation, and that is tradition. Tradition. And so I don't say this glibly or without any respect, but I say that the Roman Catholics had and have it half right, right? To say that scripture is our authority, that is the truth. But to say that tradition is an infallible authority militates against the doctrine of sola scriptura. Secondly, the reformers and the evangelicals today absolutely insist on this sola, namely sola scriptura. We believe in scripture and scripture alone. Finally, soli deo gloria. You know, the great composer Bach was a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he loved to write at the end of his letters, and I have kind of adapted this in my own personal ministry. He used to write SDG. And of course, you know, SDG stands for soli deo gloria. Here is our statement from Christ Fellowship. We believe in the triune God who exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, who created, sustains, and sovereignly rules over all things, and to whom belongs all glory forever and ever. Amen. And of course, you know, the book of Romans is written really in two main, uh, uh, I don't want to say categories, but there's two main sections of Romans. There is Romans chapter 1 that goes all the way to chapter 11, verse 36. And then there's Romans chapter 12 that goes all the way to the end of the book. Romans chapter 1 through 1136 is the doctrinal section of Romans. The second half is the, the practical application of that doctrine. And it's very interesting that you get to the end of the doctrinal portion. Paul ends with these, these words. He says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him belong the glory forever and ever. Amen. My favorite living preacher, Stephen Lawson, preached two sermons on that verse. Wow. And I'm going to give it one week. So in other words, I'm admitting you're going to get shortchanged. One writer puts it like this. The Christian at every point on his horizon views God as God by honoring him in all things as almighty creator who has made all things to his own sake, who as God is not bound by anything but himself and determines for every creature, both its being and the law thereof now and forevermore. Not Deo Gloria, but solely Deo Gloria. Close quote. Now these basic, very basic, yet deeply profound doctrinal realities help to give rise to the Protestant Reformation. And these realities not only set Europe on fire in the 16th century, they, they set individual hearts on fire. Hearts on fire like not only Luther, but, but John Calvin and John Knox and William Tyndale, great men of God who love the word of God and who love the gospel. And they would proclaim the gospel. They would live the gospel out. And these unchanging truths have the, the power, I believe, to spark a new reformation right here at Christ Fellowship. A new reformation right here in our little corner of the world. Now, in a town that's a long ways away, in fact, it's very interesting, in the 16th century town of Geneva, 
Geneva had about 12,000 people. What do you think I'm thinking about? Isn't that about the size of Linden? So you can kind of imagine what, what Geneva was like in those days. In Geneva, the Reformed believers coined a little Latin phrase, one more Latin phrase that went like this, post tenebras lux. I love this phrase. Post tenebras lux means this, after darkness, light. Because here, these Christ followers, these newly converted people had lived in the dark, the dark ages of the Middle Ages for most of their lives. These words then capture the essence of what the reformers experienced as they rediscovered, not invented, but as they unearthed the biblical gospel that had been eclipsed for hundreds and hundreds of years. As we close, I want to show you something. This will be brand new to some of you. I want to show you a, one of actually my, my favorite graphics, one of my favorite pictures. It's what's referred to as the Luther Rose. How many of you have never seen this? Give me a show of hand. You've never seen this. I, I, I would love just to take a minute and close by showing you how and why this was important to Martin Luther. You see at the center of this photograph, a black cross, which represents Christ's sacrifice on the cross for sinners. You see, Luther believed with the other reformers and with scripture in penal substitutionary atonement. And so that's why that is at the center of this diagram. Now, the cross is in the center of a red heart that you see to show that faith causes love, joy, and peace to grow in the heart of the converted man, woman, boy, and girl. And we've examined that earlier in the message. Number three, the the red heart is seated on, and it's hard to tell from this picture, but it's seated on a white rose, which was Luther's personal favorite. Why? Because white is the color of angels. And then the white rose is superimposed against a blue sky background, symbolizing the Christian's hope for the coming joys of heaven. And then finally, to cap it all off, the seal is enclosed with a gold ring that shows the joy of heaven is unending. The joy of heaven is unending. Now, as we close this morning... I want to underscore something that I would ask that you would carry with you through the rest of this series. And it's something that's very important. It's, it's close to my heart, and it's something we need to recognize up front. Over the next course, the next several weeks, as we move to October 31st, this is not a study on Martin Luther. This is not a study on any of the other reformers in particular. It is, however, about the recovery of truth that Luther and the other reformers discovered. This indeed is about the recovery of the biblical gospel. Now here's the key question I want to leave with you, and it's one that you have heard me uh, talk about in previous messages. The key question, if you forget everything else about the Protestant Reformation, this is the question you need to be prepared to answer as you sit down with someone in a coffee shop, as you talk with someone about the gospel, as you talk with someone about the Reformation, the key question of the Protestant Reformation was this. How can a sinner stand in the presence of a holy God? That is a great question. That is the question that the Reformers sought to answer. You realize how Luther, for several years of his adult life, how he answered that question. This is the answer to the question. Scrub, 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 right? That was his answer. Lay on the ground, wash the floor, fasting, working, fasting, beating his body. But that's not the answer as we have seen. The answer surfaces if you would turn to one final passage in Romans chapter 4 verse 1. And I love Romans chapter 4. I have literally had people come up to me. And maybe you'll be one of the, the additional people today. Nothing would thrill me more. I've had people come up to me after I've read the scripture and I've had people say, I, I have never heard that before. And I'm convinced that most people have heard it dozens, if not 
Hundreds of times, but you've never read it in the historical context. Starting in verse 1. What shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. I see sinners stand in the presence of a holy God, not by works, not by what we do or what we can accomplish, but we stand in the presence of holy God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, on the word alone, to the glory of God alone. I want to ask you this morning, Have you given up your efforts to please God by trying to earn his favor? The resounding message of the New Testament is this. Acts 16.31 says, Believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. I can just imagine if someone would have said that early on to Luther. Here he is on, on the ground, brushing the floor, and someone said, Father, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Rubbish. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And I've had people say to me, that's too easy. I need to do something so that God will accept me. And their scriptures respond with these words. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Many of you here this morning, as I look out at you, have embraced the biblical gospel. Some of you have been walking with Jesus for many, many, many years. If you were a Christ follower this morning, I want to give you a final challenge. And I want you to remember this, that the the solas of the Reformation I've discovered look really good in in your library collection. You can take notes this morning and and you can can highlight the the main categories. You can add little comments. You can write in the quotes. You can put it in your notebook and you can put it on your shelf. And I love to put a notebook on the shelf and write, Solas of the Reformation. Yeah. And it looks good, right? It does look good. But I want to remind you that we need to do more than believe in the solas of the Reformation. As we learn more in the coming weeks, I want to challenge you to to cherish these great doctrinal truths, not only in your mind, not only in your hearts, but they would affect your hands, they would affect your feet, they would affect your lips as you proclaim the truth to people in this community. There is a girl in the book of Acts who heard Paul and Timothy speak of the gospel message. And she said this in Acts sixteen seventeen. She said, these, and I imagine her looking over at Paul and Timothy, She said, these are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. You see, our task, friends, is to begin by embracing and believing in the souls of the Reformation. But our next task is to hit the streets. Our next task is to begin to tell people, is to proclaim the gospel. That word proclaim means to announce or to preach with conviction. And I, I can already hear the response. But Pastor, I'm not a preacher. You don't understand. I'm not a preacher. That's great. Go into the highways and byways. Go into the parks. Go into the coffee shops. Go to your place of employment. Go to your school. And just tell people about Jesus. Tell people about Jesus. Our challenge today is to do just that. To tell them that they can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, on the word alone, for the glory of God alone. I want to share one final illustration with you. And I'm, I'm really scanning the sanctuary to make sure this individual's not here. Because I plan on having further discussions with him. 
I met a young man in Bellingham less than two weeks ago and sat down to ha- uh, have some work done on my car. And as he came up to me, I saw that he had a tattoo on his arm. Now, what's the typical response from most Christians to tattoos? I can't believe you got a tattoo. I love asking questions about tattoos, okay? Because you learn something about a person. And sketched on his arms were three words in Greek. Logos, pathos, epithumia. And I was like, wow. And I said, what's the deal with the tats, dude? And he went, well, you know, I like the Greek, da-da-da. And I said, well... Lagos, pathos, and epithumia. Wow, cool. And he went, how did you know that? And I went, I studied Greek in seminary. He said, wow, isn't that interesting? And I said, you know the word logos, the word for reason or logic or word? He goes, yeah. He goes, goes, those are the three words that Plato used to emphasize. And I said, I realize that. Well, at that point, he left to to, uh, pay attention to my car. Well, that gave gave me a few minutes to kind of load up the double barrel shotgun, right? In a good way, a really good way. Well, I was ready for him when he came back and I, I addressed him by name and he had a, a, a wonderful Hebrew first name and middle name. And so we have this kind of common connection. I'm David Samuel, right? And he had two Hebrew names as well. And so we kind of built a bridge that way. And as I paid the bill, which I believe was far too expensive, I said, may I ask you a question? And he said, well, certainly. I said, I'm really interested in your tats. I said, uh, you seem fascinated by that word logos. I said, could we just chat about that word for a minute? And he had other people waiting, you know, for him. He said, yeah, sure. And I said, you know that logos, that's the word as you admitted, is the word for, for reason or logic. I said, may I show you a scripture? And he said, well, yeah, I guess. And I opened to John chapter 1, verse 1, that said, in the beginning was the logos translated word in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god and i said you know what's really interesting do you know what plato said who lived hundreds of years before jesus christ he said one day a logos will be revealed who will answer all of our questions and make everything plain and standing over that counter i said young man do you know who the logos is he said i have no idea I said, the Logos is Jesus Christ. And Plato, a pagan philosopher, predicted it. He said, that's the coolest thing I've ever heard. I had no idea. And here was the last thing I said, and we'll close with this. I said, here's my business card. And I said, if you ever want to talk more about the Logos, you give me a call and we'll talk about the Logos. He's like, cool, man. Would you pray for my friend, Caleb, Joshua? That one day he would meet the, the Logos. That he would understand that, that Jesus Christ is the final revelation of God. And that's just one small example of what it means to, to proclaim the solace. I didn't do anything special. I just said, hey, Jesus is the Logos and it's really cool. You need to learn more about him. How many of you could do that? You could all do it. You could all do it. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the beginning of this study together. I pray that you would uh, help us to go deeper into your glory and the gospel of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Next week, as we come back to learn more about grace alone, that you would saturate our hearts and minds in the word of God, and that we would leave this place ready to share the good news of the glorious Savior. Now, God, I pray that you would enable our voices. You would uh, equip us to sing this final song all to the glory of God. In Jesus' name, amen.